Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is Joanna Fortune. She's the author of a three-book series, 15-Minute Parenting, and host of the 15-Minute Parenting podcast. She's also a trauma and attachment repair specialist with over 20 years clinical experience. She's contributed to the media on all aspects of parenting and the development of adolescents and children. Her fourth and most recent book is Why We Play, How to Find Joy and Meaning in Everyday Life. Joanna Fortune, welcome to Monocle Reads. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, this book is not just for children. This is for adults too. And it draws on your over 20 years of neuroscientific research and your your clinical practice. And it is about, well, why we play. You examine the science of play. Why is it good for us? This book, compared to the other books that I've written that you mentioned there in the introduction, this book is really about adults. So some of it is about taking a journey back to that experience we had as children playing, but it's about maximizing the benefits of play now in our adult lives. And it's largely because, and I do go through this in the book, that play in this regard is a neural exercise. It's a blend particularly of those two pathways we have that are, I I liken it to the housekeeping of our autonomic nervous system that keep us balanced, that keep us regulated, that keep us grounded. You know, that part of ourselves where we're like, oh gosh, I've arrived here. I want to throw down an anchor, pitch my tent. This is where I want to stay. But the reality is we all have experiences day to day and certainly over the course of our lives that dysregulate us, that kick us out of that safe and regulated zone and put us somewhere else. That's a very activated, mobilized default setting. I tend to go there myself. I know that about myself when I'm quite stressed or under pressure. I take on more jobs. I'm the person volunteering when I have no time to give. I tend to go, go, go. And part of how I I've been using play over the course of my life and certainly in adulthood and over the journey of my career because of the nature of the work I do is I use play to pull me out of that heightened state of frenetic paced arousal and to bring me down into slowing down taking it a bit easier and speaking to my autonomic nervous system to get back to that that zone of optimum arousal. So play in that regard is that blend of those pathways. Play is safe and regulating, but it's also activating and mobilizing. And it also has applications that slow us down, ground us and help us to feel calmer within ourselves. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about play as a neural exercise. And it's why I do devote a chapter in here to looking at it through the lens of polyvagal theory or that science of safety. And when you talk about play in the the context of adults, I mean, we're not talking about Lego or train sets. What is it that we're doing? What, What is play? Do you know, in some bits of the book, I am talking about Lego and hula hoops and drawing chalk hopscotch boards and, you know, getting back to that type of play. If that type of play is where your play personality and your play history brings you, I would define that as more whimsical play. And some of us thrive there. And others of us think, oh, no, the idea, the minute you mentioned the word play, I think you want me to turn into a TV children's presenter and I'm going to have to wear colorful dungarees and, you know, illuminous hairstyles. And I say, no, unless that, again, suits your play personality. So there's also within here a breadcrumb trail of finding 
what play pattern and play rhythm is going to resonate closest to you and where you feel comfortable with it. That might, for example, be somebody who better suits more intellectual play. That could be crossword puzzles, that could be Wordle or Sudoku or jigsaw puzzles or intricate Lego building pieces that take ages and ages to build, but you're building some, you know, historical building by the end of it. It could be play that requires more intellectual input. And that's where you feel safe and regulated, because really the message here is that play isn't a box of toys sitting in the corner of a room. Play isn't, you know, having your action man talk to your Barbie doll. That's not what it's about. Play is a state of mind and it is a way of being and particularly in our adult lives, I want to bring people to that place where they can playfully engage with certainly with themselves, but also in relationship to others and in connection with the world around us. And that's playful as a state of mind. And that state of mind really matters because it fuels flexibility and adaptability. It helps us to move with the changes in our lives, to not feel overwhelmed by stress when, not if, when it comes our way, but to see a playful opportunity to learn from mistakes and errors and master attention rousing experiences in a way that gives back to us and through which we grow and develop. And to live a joyful life, I suppose. Absolutely. Life has, you know, it's so serious. And I, for what, not for one moment do I want to infer that adult life isn't serious and that we don't have serious responsibilities in our lives. Of course we do. But I also wanted to paint a picture here of the seriousness of play. You know, we're taught to relegate play to the realm of childhood. And I would like to use this book as a way of building a bridge to close that that gap between childhood and adulthood and see that play, in fact, is precisely how we will transition through the stages of our lives over the trajectory of our lives. You talk about changing the stories we live by. What do you mean by that? So, I mean, I always think we're storied people. We live storied lives. We are born into family stories. And all of us, you know, anyone listening will know instantly if you come from an ascending family narrative, you've grown up with stories of your family talking about how you've come from nothing and over the generations, look at all you've grown and gained or a descending family narrative where the the tone of the family story has been, we used to have it all, but, you know, we lost it all and now we've nothing. And more of us, again, come from an oscillating family narrative, you know, stories that tell us that over the generations that have come before us, there have been highs and lows, but ultimately we've come through it as a family. And whatever the rhythm of those family stories, they set the tone of how we live, what we expect for ourselves, where we think we're supposed to go in life, how far we're supposed to go in life, you know, what are we supposed to achieve? And they can be very life enhancing stories, but they can also be quite life limiting stories or inhibiting stories. And when we talk about our storied lives, what I'm saying is that we can take control of writing the next chapter for ourselves. And how do we want that to read for us in the moment, but also passing that story forward to whoever will come after you and that you can change the direction of that family narrative by inserting a more playful approach. And it's why in the book, I do a lot of play activities that do center around stories. This again, you do not have to be 
you know, a fiction writer, or even if you don't consider yourself highly imaginative, you can write your story. And I give you those ways in which you can explore that. There's a play audit about going back and capturing your play history, what that was like for you, maybe taking a pause and reflecting on how do you wish it had been and what difference that would have made and letting that be your starting point for what comes next. You talk about play within our adult relationships. How does that work? So, yes, I mean, I think, you know, one of the funny things about this is in 2017, when I wrote my first book, uh, it's for parenting. So zero to seven years, playful parenting. And in it, I made reference to as co-parents being playful with each other. And I really meant play without intimate agenda. Let's put it that way. I meant playfully doing the dishes, being playful in how you engage and interact. And I remember somebody asking me about it and saying, gosh, I get it intellectually why that makes sense. But the idea of doing it makes me cringe. And here we are, you know, a few years later, thinking of a whole book about playing like that in adulthood. So it was really important for me to go back and explore all aspects of playfulness in relationships. So in this section, I am talking about play in our adult relationships, including intimacy enhancing play. Again, I'm being very creative how I'm wording that at the moment, (laughs) but you know exactly what I mean. And I also talk about the opposite of that play without intimate agenda. And that can be within our intimate partner relationships, certainly, but it can also be with our adult friends, our adult siblings, or as the adult child of an aging parent, how you approach play in those relationships. And really, I'm using the playfulness and the activities in that section to explore the depths of, you know, I understand my playful self, but can I stretch myself a little, not a lot, but a little outside of my comfort zone to meet somebody else in my family, bring them with me and strengthen and enhance that relationship because playfulness is an excellent route to repairing ruptures within relationships. Now, what about making time for our friends, making new friends, making time for the friends that we already have, staying connected and also just having friends that perhaps we don't know that well, just acquaintances. Why is all that important? This was really interesting because I I asked a couple of questions around friendships and particularly making new friends on my social media, which is not exactly research, but more anecdotal. How are people experiencing that and being very mindful that people who are engaging with me on social media are already playfully oriented or seeking it? And what came up was just really striking about that, that people are lonely in adulthood. It's hard to make new friends in adulthood. Most of the friends that people referenced were about friends from earlier stages of their lives that they were maintaining connections with. But because life moves in different ways for all of us, some of those were even hard to sustain. And loneliness is one of the biggest contributors to mental ill health in adulthood. And yet it is one of the most under-discussed aspects of mental health when conversations about mental health happen. I mean, again, how we experience loneliness will always be different between us. You know, my experience of it will be very different to yours, but we can both feel lonely. So it's difficult to kind of tangibly define what is that? What exactly is lonely? But I always think of it as, you know, we are lonely when our attempts or our desire to make those social emotional connections with others are not reciprocated. So we're bidding to connect and we don't get that loop feedback. We don't get someone delighting in us. And if you're constantly bidding to connect with somebody 
and you don't get anything back, you give up trying. Mm. And in that giving up, the loneliness emerges. So it's important to really give time, proper time to those relationships. Absolutely. And it's something that comes up in my work with families where I might be working with parents about their children. And, you know, as parents, we we can fixate on our children's friendships because thereby we recognize, our, gosh, we really want them to have friends and to be happy and to be connected and to have people in their life. But do we model that for our children? And too often when children enter the equation, we let go of our outside relationships because of, understandably, by the way, the time, the focus, everything going inwards to our family unit. And I would say it's essential to being a happy, healthy person and also happy, healthy parent that you have a life outside of your relationship, a life outside of your children, a life outside of your family. We need our friends. We need those connections because they're about us and they're for us. And investing in ourselves is investing in our family. Mm. What about the relationship between play and work? Oh, I'm a big advocate of this. You know, I, I'm, you know, now that we, you know, the, the whole idea of taking a cigarette break is almost completely out of fashion because of, and great stuff, you know, people aren't smoking as much, but at the same time, I'd love to replace that concept with, oh, I'll just be taking my play break right now. And for us to have these little breaks during our day, because one of the ways we look at it, and I, you know, in a certain point of our career journey, when we're starting out, being fully invested in the, the work side of it and career oriented can serve us well, you know, but it's it's when that is a prolonged duration, when we have cast aside our playfulness or our joie de vivre, our, our drive for that joy in our lives. Actually, our mood drops, we become less optimistic, we can struggle to find joy in the job and joy in our lives, and it becomes very functional. And when it's functional, we're simply turning up and going through the motions. But if we can put play in there, and if we can give ourselves those breaks, because remember, play fuels a flexible, adaptable mind, then out of that will come creativity, new ideas, fresh thinking, a fresh perspective on matters. We become more productive in the workplace when we give back to ourselves in this way. And I think, again, you know, too much in work when people think of, you know, we're going to invest in play. They think of one of those team building days with lots of audience participation, role play activities. And it's like, oh, gosh, yes, we go we go orienteering or abseiling once a year as a team and it's torturous. But, you know, we all do it because allegedly it's good for us. You can do those things, certainly, but I'm talking about a daily practice. So, for example, in my desk drawer, I keep some a very small notebook for me, but you can equally do it with scraps of paper and some crayons. I have a small, you know, children's party bag size of mm -hmm. bubbles. I keep one of those. These are all in like a freezer Ziploc bag. I put one of those in. I keep a very small little tub of Play-Doh or putty and I keep a balloon. I also keep some goggly eye stickers because I've yet to meet a PDF document that doesn't improve, actually, when you start putting goggly eye stickers down the side <laughs> of the margins and making funny faces. Keep that for your own copy. You might not want to circulate that copy to everybody else. <laughs> but I keep all of that there because sometimes when I'm trying to do something or get to a deadline, I'm under pressure. It's always, you know, this really hits me when I'm under pressure. And I, I'm at that stage of the words swimming around the screen in front of me and I've been staring at the same thing for 10 minutes and still have no idea of what I'm doing or I've gone to start something and instead I've tidied the desk. You know, we all do things like that. I find turn away, 
take out my play kit, take out my Play-Doh, manipulate it, mold it, pull it, stretch it, you know, press my hand into it, make knuckle prints, make thumb prints, make something. It could be five minutes. It could be 15 minutes. I always keep some Lego blocks in there too, because sometimes actually for me, constructing something and building something and turning these blocks into an item is a really good way to kickstart solution-focused thinking for me and critical thinking. So again, you'll find what works for you, but I'm a firm believer that we need these play breaks. And don't be worried if you're in an office and you think I'm going to blow up a balloon, which by the way, is great for breath control. I always think in the history of being stressed out when somebody tells you, take a deep breath and calm down, it never (laughs) calms you down. But if you take a deep breath and exhale into a balloon and you have to do three to five breaths to blow up your balloon, you are already doing a breathing exercise, then you knot the balloon and you can do some keepy uppies at your desk. And don't be thinking people are going to look at you in a strange way. They're much more likely to come over and get in on the action and join you in that keepy uppies and have a play activity with you. Bubbles, equally a great way to do breath control. I mean, that all sounds great and I can absolutely see the value of it. But at what point does it become procrastination? (laughs) Well, you see, if it's procrastination, it's actually not playfulness because then it's about something else. Then it's about if it's I'm doing this to delay, my mind is still on the thing I'm avoiding and then I'm not actually in the play either. So that would be a different thing. If you're in a state of procrastination, I think it's better to step back and wonder what is it I'm avoiding here? What is it I'm defending against? What might make it easier for me to get the task done? And you will find that there is a thought, there is something else, maybe in a relationship, maybe in an experience you've had that morning on your way to work or yesterday that you're still carrying. That's your block. So actually identifying that and then try using play to restory that. How do you wish that interaction had gone? What do you wish you had said in that moment? Do that. Tell that story now then do your play and then you'll be back on track. I really wish that I could live by these suggestions. And I wonder if you could just talk us through some of the other exercises that can help us achieve that. So, I mean, I always think, you know, I'm going to give you one about a sketch a day helps me to play because one of the ways with this is you do not need to be good at art. Okay. This is for you and it's actually not about that. You're going to start by coloring your feelings. So that takes a compassion pause. I need to check in with how am I thinking? How am I feeling emotionally? How am I feeling in my physical body? I identify the feeling. What color would that feeling be? What shape would it be? What size? Would it have rough edges or would it be smooth? Would it be light? Would it be heavy? Where does it live in my body? And I begin then to color that out as I'm thinking that through. And I'm really bringing myself through that. Equally, you could color a thought. You could decide it's, I'm going to pick blue. What's a blue thought? You know, what kind of a thought comes to my mind when I'm thinking of blue? Again, you don't have to be, well, is that right? It's literally what comes to your mind. And the other activity I think with drawing, you know, a sketch a day helps you to play, is that you could take a piece of paper, position your pen 
at a certain point, close your eyes and just draw a large kind of a circle or a shape as close around the edges of the page as you can, bearing in mind your eyes are closed. When you open your eyes, just close off the lines to make sure they join. Then every single day, take out that page and add something into it because it's a map and it's a map of your ideal community. And every day you're going to add in something. It could be houses, it could be roads, it could be traffic lights, it could be playgrounds, it could be people, it could be trees, different infrastructure. But you have this map in your desk drawer that you just take out and every day, a couple of minutes to add something in. I'll leave you with another one in this, this drawing idea where you can take a piece of paper and a pen, put your pen in your non-dominant hand. So for me, that would be my left hand because I'm right-handed. Put the pen on the piece of paper, close your eyes. And as you count 15 down to one, draw a scribble, a doodle, just move that pen all around the page. When you get to one, open your eyes, turn the page 180 degrees, so the other way around, in other words, put the pen in your dominant hand, and now spend a few minutes adding features or little additional pieces into that scribble to make it something recognizable. So out of the chaos, comes structure and order, something recognizable out of the mess. And that's a really healthy way to do it. By doing other handed drawing has multiple benefits for us, one of which is it stops us pursuing perfection mm. because you won't get it perfect drawing with your non-dominant hand. So it allows you to focus instead on the imaginative piece of what you're imagining going in rather than it being accurate, proper or the best work. Now, this book is a journey through theory and research of play and also lots and lots of practical hints on how to do it in all aspects of our adult lives. You make the point at the end, you conclude by saying play is for life. Yes. And I really believe that, that, you know, we're never going to outgrow our need to play. How we play will change and evolve as we change and evolve. I do different types of work and group work. I've seen a cotton ball snowball fight done by elderly people in an elder person's home. And the peals of laughter and the shared joy experienced in that is more effective than anything else anyone could be doing because you've got joy. And when you've got joy, you've got connection. And I think that's the thing about joy that I really wanted to get across here, that in order to enjoy life and enjoy other people and even enjoy our own achievements, we have to have experienced being enjoyed. And I think that's a really nice place to start with this book is just pay attention to who comes into your head straight away when I ask who enjoyed you as a child. And that very first person, even if it surprises you who comes to your head, how do you know that they enjoyed you? How did they let you know that? And that's a good starting point to think about the importance of joy. Who now enjoys you in your life? Who do you enjoy and how do you share it? Joy is a shared experience and a playful mind will set us in pursuit of those connections. And those connections will carry us right through the trajectory of our life. Joanna, thank you so much. That was so fascinating. Thank you for having me. It was really enjoyable. There you go. (laughs) Why We Play, How to Find Joy and Meaning in Everyday Life by Joanna Fortune. It's out now. It's published by Thread. You've been listening to Monica Reads. Thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researcher Tamsin Howard. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.